This episode of Live from CapTime's IdeaFest is sponsored by Exact Sciences. Learn more about Exact Sciences' mission to beat cancer through early detection at exactsciences.com. Hello, and welcome to Live from Cap Times Idea Fest. With the holidays upon us, we're bringing you even more conversations from this year's Cap Times Idea Fest, which took place in September on the University of Wisconsin Madison campus. On today's episode, a one on one conversation with Kevin Conroy. Conroy is the CEO of Exact Sciences a publicly traded biotechnology company in Madison that is seeing rapid growth thanks to its colorectal cancer screening technology. In this interview with biotechnology journalist Luke Timmerman, Conroy talks about his journey into the life sciences, the ups and downs his company has seen over the past few years, and his take on the current state of cancer detection and research. All right, let's get started. I hope you enjoy the talk. Kevin, um, could we just like start with a little bit on who you are and how you how you got to this position? And Luke is just he's going to try to skip over the fact that this year he climbed Mount Everest. How about that? To support (laughs) to support uh, the Fred Hutchinson um, Cancer Center in Seattle. How about that? Huge. Thank you. I'm very proud of that for, for multiple reasons, but the biggest one of all is that this was connected to a charity fundraising campaign that raised $340,000 for cancer research. I tapped my network of, of readers and listeners, I have podcasts and such, and uh, it was because of this really exciting moment of possibility in cancer, which I, both of you and I see this uh, in our day jobs. It's remarkable how far it's come, and, and yours is one example of... Why, why people are excited, why they want to give to cancer research at this moment. I forget what your question was earlier, but <laughs> well, I, I can tell you one thing. This is, I mean, the world of cancer is really going to change. And um, we're at the early, early cusp of this powerful, you know, understanding the gene, which we're starting to really understand and how it works and how it doesn't work is, is changing everything from early detection to treatments. Yeah. So I want to get there, but just in the kind of the slow windup, like, who are you? Where, where are you from? Born, born and raised. I try to figure that out every day. <laughs> no, no clue. I grew up in Flint, Michigan, and, um, it, which was an auto town with 80-plus thousand auto employees at the time, and it's changed quite a bit. Uh, I went to Michigan State, studied electrical engineering. I was not very good at it. I went to law school, which I really enjoyed, and became an intellectual property lawyer which took me through a circuitous route to GE Healthcare in Milwaukee, where my wife is from. And um, so we lived there for four years. I came to work for Third Wave Technologies as general counsel. I uh, got a break and became CEO in December of 2005. The company was kind of in trouble. Uh, Team really pulled together and we turned it around and developed a cervical cancer screening test called Cervista based on the HPV virus. 
looking at the DNA sequence of finding that DNA sequence of the virus in the remnants of a pap smear to signal if that virus is present, that's the early sign of potential cancer, follow up with a pap smear, follow up potentially with the LEAP procedure to remove the precursor lesion. And it was really inspirational, that whole, actually that whole experience, but learning about cervical cancer, which was the number one cancer killer of women until the 1950s. And then Dr. Papalakankau, who was an uh, immigrant from Greece, developed the pap smear. And the pap smear, um, I'll do a little quiz. Does the pap smear detect 50% of uh, precancers, 70% or 90%? 50%. So the, the pap smear misses 50% of all problems, and it's the only uh, screening test that has nearly eradicated a disease. How? Well, it's because that precursor lesion takes 10 years to turn into cancer. And so women who got an annual pap smear, now they've moved it to every three years, I think for cost reasons, but it, from the 1950s when it was first introduced until the 1970s when it became commonplace until today when 85% of women get screened, you find the, the small lesion and you go in and just simply ablate it. And that is a relatively painless procedure which actually prevents cancer. And so we've gone from 35,000 deaths in this country per year to 3,500. And that's among the women who mainly aren't screened. So it's, it's proof that maybe all of our dollars shouldn't go into developing new drugs. It should go into to new ways of detecting cancer really early. We, we have some debates in our country about the extent of which we ought to screen. The, I think we can get to that later. Things like prostate cancer, mammograms that that aren't always accurate uh, and sometimes lead to overtreatment. Um, but but I want to come back to you, you skipped through your background very quickly, uh, and I think people are interested in uh, in this because you're a lawyer by training, not a scientist, and neither am I. How did you get turned on to science? How did, how did you kind of overcome sort of the initial intimidation, which kind of is par for the course? You know, I was always interested in biology and chemistry. I ended up uh, going into electrical engineering because if you remember in the early 1980s in Michigan, the, well, throughout the country, but really in Michigan, the city of Flint had a 25% unemployment rate. But, but electrical engineers seemed to be getting jobs. And so I was really practical. I really, it had a big impact. I looked around and said, so many of my friends' uh, parents were out of work. It was just a really tough time. I thought, I'm going to become an electrical engineer. So if there are any students in the audience, actually don't take that path. Do what you really like. I love biology, and I took all of my electives in biology. or I actually voluntarily took organic chemistry, biochemistry. And the weed-out course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but then, um, so you go, you get legal training. And by the way, you go from Michigan State to Michigan, Spartan to That's Wolverine. How, how does that happen? <laughs> I, uh, I kept wearing my green every day I could on campus. Um, I don't know if there are any Michigan fans in the audience, but boo. Um, all right, we won. 31-20. Well, there's a certain uh, willingness to go against the grain that all entrepreneurs have, so maybe you were exhibiting it early. Um, 
Okay, so so you like biology, but now um, you're. So what years are we talking? You're in law school, and you're coming out and like looking for a real job. So it was. I graduated from law school in 1991, and uh, went to work in private practice, and was really interested in intellectual property law because of the vast array of scientific, engineering kind of different concepts that you had to learn. And as an IP lawyer, you had to learn the technology really quickly if you were going to advise your client whether a particular new idea infringed upon a whole series of, of patents. And so you really had to pull a lot of these different concepts together. And did you get exposed to any biology, life sciences clients at this time? None. None. You know, I was in Chicago, so that was not the hotbed really of intellectual property law for the life sciences. And if I could do it all over again, maybe I would have gone to California or Boston where these industries really started to emerge in the 70s, 80s, and, and early 90s. Yeah, they've got the ecosystems, as they say, for, you know, the, to create the, the kind of virtuous cycle uh, of throwing off more companies and, uh, and ideas. But so, so you're an IP lawyer, you're getting started out. Uh, how did you get tied in with this third wave technologies crew that brought you to Madison? I got a call about they were looking for a new general counsel. And uh, I took the call and I met with the company. It was really intriguing technology developed here by Jim Dahlberg. He in, um, discovered an enzyme that could detect small errors when DNA is replicated, when cells divide, and you need something to check to make sure that the new strand of the new chromosomes are intact. And he discovered an enzyme that detects a, an, um, a flap. So there's a mistake that was made in copying the DNA. And he discovered an enzyme whose only job was to detect that flap and cut it. He called it cleavase because it would cleave part of this strand that was extraneous, and it would basically heal the DNA. It does. In every cell, in every living organism um, in nature, you have this enzyme. It's, a, it's called a flap repair enzyme, and that's the, actually the core technology that powers Cologuard today. And where did this uh, come from? It, it was discovered here at the University of Wisconsin Medical School. Jim Dahlberg was uh, uh, now he's a professor emeritus and an all-around great guy, discovered this and then ultimately built third-wave technologies around this idea because they very cleverly took this enzyme and used it as a way to both amplify DNA. So if you want to detect it first, you need to make a lot more of it uh, very accurately um, and very specifically in a way that doesn't cause a lot of background noise and errors. And as time goes on, you take a basic technology, as is often the case, and you need to find a practical application for it. You find that in women's health. Yeah, it was interesting. So when I joined Third Wave, it had been what was called a tools company. So they were selling these assays to researchers in the U.S. and around the world. And, and they then decided, boy, that's a pretty competitive market. Uh, there is another product out there that ha had already become standard of care. Let's adapt this technology and become a clinical diagnostic company. And they developed a whole series of tests for things like hereditary diseases like cystic fibrosis. The, it, and that was a competitive market. And they didn't have good inst instrumentation to automate the tests, so the labs were 
you know, they, they liked the test, but they didn't love the test. And when I, the day I became CEO, there were 13 different products in development. And we were 14 months away from running out of money as a public company. Um, and it, the company was challenged. And so we, we knew that the biggest and best opportunity in this portfolio of potential products was a cervical cancer screening test. So instead of looking for the actual precancerous cells, you could actually look for the virus that precipitated those cells. The, the virus actually integrates with the, the cells in the cervix and actually forces them to, to change and they you know, turn uh, those cells into cancerous cells. And, and so we looked at that opportunity and said, let's stop everything else and get this company focused around developing a test that will make a big difference. And it was a big bet because we had to consent 30,000 women in, into this huge clinical trial. And then at the end of that study, open up a database and say, was the test successful or not? And if it wasn't, it was kaput. We were not going to be in a good place. And this explains why you brought up that earlier story about the pap smear. You had to become very familiar with, okay, what is the, the standard of care here? Uh, and can we improve upon it somehow? What, what was your case? What was the case that you were making to the medical community that, hey, we've got something worthwhile? Well, you could, uh, where it's hard frequently to visualize the cells that cause the problem, in part because if you can imagine a cervix and taking a smear, you know, you may miss that little spot where the cancer is. Okay, so your, the sensitivity of the test is limited because you actually have to catch the cells. If you're looking for a virus, that virus is, is present not only in that little area, it's, it's present on the cervix. And so that idea is that let's catch this thing that is more prevalent, and then if it's there, then do the pap smear. Mm -hmm. and, and so that is a standard of care that has been changed. Fortunately, we were successful with, we built a really good product. We were successful with the clinical trial, and then Servista became part of a bigger company called Hologic, and I found myself unemployed in the middle of 2008. Yeah, not a great time to be unemployed. <laughs> um, so people remember the financial crisis. So it was 08, 09. I mean, the company did well. It gets acquired by Hologic for $600 million. Presumably you did okay. Um, and many other people did too. But you're looking around for what's the next thing. You're, you're not ready to retire at this point, right? <laughs> I hope not. No, I, I was not. So you, um, how did you come upon... Exact, because th this is the part where I, I remember covering the company, and it was pretty much, I was ready to write its obituary in 2008. Uh, I think the, the story that I wrote at the time, uh, you, you had turned it around a little bit, but it was 12 years in to its history, $170 million of investor capital had been invested, uh, stock price of a b below $1, and no marketed product, no revenue. This, this, is what you, this is what you were looking at. Yeah, that, that's all true. And when I got the call, I, I, I knew exact sciences. And I got a call from somebody, the board of directors had, had hired to find a new CEO. And they said, Kevin, would you like to look at this opportunity? And, and I said, well, wait a minute. I, I just read that exact sciences got shut down by the FDA and that their, their third attempt at developing a stool-based, DNA-based colon cancer screening test had failed. And they said, yes, that's true. And... Uh, I said, okay, what day would you like me to come out to Boston? 
I really, I, I just didn't have a lot to do better. I, and um, so I, <laughs> I thought I'll get out of the house and I, I went to Boston. And during that day, my worst fears came true and there was no product. There was no hope of a product. But they were really great people. Ed Kenya, who was on the board of directors, a phenomenal guy. Well, we laugh, but actually there's a lot of good evidence that says some really good companies do get started in the middle of recessions. Uh, yes. Partly because here you had more than 10 years worth of investment, uh, a very credible scientific founder in Stan Lapidus, uh, who had attracted some good people. I mean, they, it wasn't like they had done nothing. They were just starving and, and on the verge of going out of business. So the founder, Stan Lapidus, is this amazing guy. He had left the company four years before this point, maybe five years before that point, and he's the one who reinvented the pap smear and started Hologic, which had acquired Third Wave. I didn't know him because he had left Hologic many years before that. He's a guy who starts companies and gets them to a certain point, recognizes that it's time for him to leave when you get to about 15, 20 employees, and then he leaves and, and brings in management. Well, he then had this idea, let's look for colon cancer cells in a stool smear. I mean, he, this was, he was like, well, why can't we do for colon cancer what the world did, what the pap smear did for cervical cancer? And so he started looking for cells in stool. It's a true story, and he couldn't find any. Well, the cells all break open. And so he thought, ah, let's not look for cells. Look, let's look for the DNA from cancer cells. And so he went around the country, he met with Bert Vogelstein, who's kind of a giant in the, in the field of uh, cancer, and, um, and Dave Alquist at the Mayo Clinic. And they were already doing this research. And so really early on, he, he decided, let's develop a test looking for sp specific, well-known DNA mutations that occur in the cells of colon cancer. The problem was the test only detected 50% of cancers. Now, this was also getting started, you know, late 1990s, throughout the early 2000s. We, this is the time of the Human Genome Project getting sequenced uh, and, and whole, all kinds of next steps beginning to occur. We're beginning to better understand what these genes do um, and what they, what they may or may not do, really. Um, but So you saw good technology pedigree. And, and, and I think a concept that resonated with you from your pre previous experience but what was the, the kind of diamond in the rough here that made you say, yeah, I want to come in and run this thing? So it was in February of 2009 that Manish Aurora, Manish and I had worked together at Third Wave. Um, and I called Manish and I said, hey, you know, what are you doing? Do you want to look at exact sciences with me? And he said, are you kidding me, Kevin? And I said, I'm not kidding. Come out to Boston. So I, I kind of brought a friend along on the interview. And um, Manish, after the interview, said, this is crazy, Kevin. What are we doing? And I said, let's go drive to the Mayo Clinic and meet with Dave Alquist. And we met with Dave Alquist, and he showed data showing the ability to detect well over 90% of colon cancer from a stool sample. Now, it took him to get one patient result. You needed 100 micro titer plates of reagents. Every micro titer plate has 96 wells. So Anna, our, our head of our lab, laughs because in Belinda and uh, Abby, they laugh, right? Because today we get 46 patients per 96 well. I mean, it was, 
It, this problem required a totally different approach to solving them. But Dave was the inspiration. So Manish and I got into the car, leaving the Mayo Clinic in February. It was freezing cold outside, and we looked at each other and said, let's do this. But you, you saw that the information was there. It could be obtained. It needed it to could. be obtained in a more efficient way. So the difference was this class of biomarkers, which had only been discovered in the 1990s, called DNA methylation. And what DNA methylation is, is imagine a long string of DNA that codes for proteins, essentially, but that in part of the initial coding region, called the promoter region, these little groups of chemicals, methyl groups, attach to the DNA basically acting like a light switch and turning that gene off, meaning that protein doesn't get created. And if that protein is a protein that regulates cell division, impedes cell division, and, and you stop that gene from expressing the protein, now you get wild cell division and you get the start of cancer. So the, it's called epigenetics and it wasn't known. It, it, you know, initially as we were studying the, you know, as the world was studying the gene, they said, okay, a gene creates, DNA creates RNA, creates a protein. Well, not if there's a methyl group here, it turns that gene off. And that class of markers, for some reason, DNA methylation occurs much earlier in the cancer process and more uniformly. So whereas uh, a KRAS mutation may occur in 30% of cancers, DNA methylation occurs in 95 plus percent of cancers. And so with only uh, a few DNA methylation markers, very specific markers, you are able to theoretically detect all colon cancers, at least at the tissue level. So you, you can look in a different place, so to speak, for meaningful information from that sample. But there's, there's information to be obtained from that non-invasive sample. Um, and by the way, there is for every cancer. This isn't, it, at the tissue level, those biomarkers are out there. Something, cancer is a disease of the DNA. And those markers are there. We don't know all of them yet. There's still so much to learn, and it's why research is important. And that was the Dave Alquist's insight there spurred our belief we can develop this test. And we thought the third wave technologies that cleavase enzyme would help. And in fact, eventually it did. So now being a business person, you, you're encouraged by what you've just described. That, that's a very good story. But you also know that um, a lot of molecular diagnostics companies around this time and even to this present day really have a hard row to hoe because of reimbursement. Um, not a lot of you know, Medicare, private insurers tend to see new tests coming along and just adding cost, or maybe they're uh, you know, not as reliable as maybe cracked up to be. Um, so when it, you know that this is the number one challenge you're going to face, pretty much from day one, I'm sure. Uh, so you set out on forming a strategy to address this head on in a very novel way. I mean, truly, that this is the part where the I'd love to hear you explain your strategic thinking around this, this decision to go through what's called CMS and FDA parallel review. 
So if I can just summarize this in a nutshell, you, you gather all of your evidence to say that your test um, is, is effective, at, sensitive at detecting a certain cancer. You try to make a scientific case to the FDA that they will put their stamp of approval on this. But not, you don't just stop there and, and, and then uh, throw the FDA application around to private insurers later. You, in parallel, uh, you, you send the same information to scientific reviewers at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So out the, you know, in one sm relatively smooth, I don't know if you'd call it smooth, but uh, in, in one more efficient process, you can check the two major boxes, which is, do I have scientific validation? Does this thing do what I say it's going to do? And is it worth paying for? We had a big problem when we joined Exact Sciences in March of 2009, which was we knew that Medicare typically didn't start to pay for a new technology for two or three years after FDA approves it. Not always, but that was kind of the standard. They, Medicare wants their own study. So we went and sat down with Medicare. And, and first of all, I wouldn't say this was like some great strategic insights that we had. Well, we got the benefit of we, hindsight. Yeah, hindsight. Now oh, yes, this was brilliant. <laughs> no, we were screwed. And, and it's the, like the mother of all invention is being in a jam. And we knew we were in a jam when we started. But again, that goes back to being unemployed. We had the choice of being unemployed or trying to do something that we thought was, would really kind of um, make a big impact. And, and I'll tell you a, a personal story about kind of what, why both Manish and I um, were motivated. So we go and sit down with FDA, and they said, look, there's a path forward. You know it's going to be a, a big study. Great. We w then went and sat down with Medicare. It was the first month of, of work, so it would have been in March of 2009. And they said, look, we want a second study. Um, and it's, a th it's typically three years after FDA approval. And so we just did the simple math. We said, okay, FDA approval is going to be five years away, and that's going to take us over $100 million to get there. And then if we have to wait another three years and run another study, it's going to be another $100 million, and that's, you know, 2017, and we're there's no way we could raise the money to do that. So and we told them that. And we were really transparent. We said, here's the problem we're trying to solve. 40% of people in America won't get screened for colon cancer versus, you know, 10% 10, 10 of women won't get screened for cervical cancer or don't get screened. Um, it, we have got a big gap here. Can you help us? And they said, well, we wrote a paper on the idea of a parallel review 10 years ago. So we've been looking for an opportunity to pursue it. Would you be interested? And we said, yes. <laughs> it did not take us long at all. And, and we said, yes. So part of it, and I always say this to entrepreneurs, when you face a problem, own it. Like, don't hide from it. There's so frequently, especially in the areas of science, you don't want, you ignore that big, ugly monster in the corner, and you just think magically it's going to solve. No, go and talk to people. And really make your case on human terms about the Im impact that your new technology could have. And sure enough, the, it, it was fantastic. For the first time ever in... Uh, 2014, August of 2014, FDA and Medicare issued a joint press release saying FDA approved the test and Medicare uh, issued their 
preliminary recommendation of coverage 90 days later it was final and, and this was really a landmark thing for the industry other people have since come along and tried to copy this very well funded very savvy companies uh, because they have seen what came next which was pretty quick market acceptance that you had cleared a very high bar of evidence with two tough regulatory bodies it, I don't think that was the end of the story. I think you still had some more work to do with convincing you know, medical um, re recommendations, guidelines, writers, that yours should be recommended best practice. Yeah. But um, how, how long would you say before you, you felt like, gosh, we've got the wind at our back, people, th th this is working now. That we, we've, we're, we're on our way. It was in 2015 that we got word from the main guideline group in America called the United States Preventive Services Task Force. I fondly call them the United States Prevent Services Task Force. <laughs> they issued a, a draft guidance saying that um, there wasn't enough evidence for Cologuard. They recommended the FIT test, but not Cologuard. Now, in a 10,000 patient study, the FIT test missed 30% of cancers. Head-to-head, Cologuard missed 6% of curable stage cancers. But that test was something like 25 bucks? That is correct. And well, yours was? 25 bucks just for the cost of the test. The actual cost of the overall service to get somebody screened is not that different than Cologuard. And we provide the whole service as a company. They just sell the little device. Your test was originally being reimbursed. It's something yeah. like 400. It's up to over 500 now. Yes. But... Um, that's still acceptable within CMS? Yes, colonoscopy costs about um, 1800 and so our test at $500 is comparable to colonoscopy over the life of a patient because our test is recommended every three years whereas colonoscopy is recommended every 10. Right, so you get the, the guidelines written in your favor. You've got... Uh, it flipped, yes. Yeah, so I, so um, I was traveling in Ireland at the time that this happened. And I don't know if you've ever been to Ireland or to the Cliffs of Moher, but they're like 700 feet straight down. And I stood at the edge of the Cliffs of Moher that night. And I looked down, I thought, man, that's a long way down. <laughs> but it's, my eyes drew me down to the, the waves crashing 700 feet below. And I looked out and I saw this am amazing horizon with the sunset looking out over the west. And I, and I thought, you know what, everything is going to be okay. And we came back on the flight back. Manish and I uh, were on this trip together. We, we sat next to each other and we wrote our response to the USPST. If we read their 200-page scientific report, and we, there were just a whole number of math flaws, and we pointed out all of the, the different issues, and fortunately, and sometimes it's just luck, Mayo Clinic had just completed a second study. So USPST have wanted a second study. That was really their biggest problem. And we got a second study which confirmed the 10,000 patient study. And, and they said it has to be published in 30 days. And Mayo Clinic got it published in 21 days. Published in a peer-reviewed journal in 21 days. Correct. That um, rarely happens. E ever. So to say this, this was fortuitous in the extreme, and only Mayo Clinic probably could have gotten that done. Okay. Now, 
just as background, U.S. Preventative Tax Task Force, uh, they, um, they had been on something of a, a warpath uh, against excessive screening. I mentioned earlier the PSA test for prostate cancer, mammograms. They, they've, they've backed off some of the, the recommendations on how early or how frequent you ought to get these things. There's a high rate of false positives, which is essentially saying that, you know, we think you've got cancer when actually you don't. And so it creates a lot of anxiety and visits and excessive treatment. So I think that's part of, like, and, and, and I think there are people on the panel that, you know, as you say, like, are not statistics experts. They're worried about excessive healthcare spending and trying to find ways to curb it. You, you know, they're all primary care physicians, and they really care about their patients, there's no doubt. And they are looking at the societal costs. But let people make that decision on their own. You know, the PSA test, so they're recommending that people don't use it as a screening test because it does cause a lot of unnecessary procedures which actually impact the quality of life. There's no doubt about it. But for the first time in a long, long time, we're starting to see advanced stage prostate cancer come back in relatively young men. We're starting to see that again because people aren't getting screened early. And, you know, make the recommendation and let people get the information. The other thing is they recommend that women in their 40s not get screened for breast cancer. Well, okay, so you have to screen about 1,700 women, 1,500 women to save one life. Their argument is that the false positives, one of their arguments, this is no, not kidding, is that that causes anxiety among women, and like women can't handle some anxiety, right? I, I, I live in a house with three women, four women. I, Careful here, Kevin. <laughs> Look it, they can handle anxiety. And they certainly can handle anxiety about breast cancer screening. And so stop. I mean, this is crazy that we're not screening women in their 40s. If you save some, and he, this is a really important point. If you save a 41-year-old, you're not only saving her life, but, you know, it impacts a family. It impacts a community. I want to come back to where we were here. We're in like early 2015. You're, you're, you're checking that next box with getting the guidelines written in a peer-reviewed paper from your collaborators at Mayo Clinic. Uh, you know, and, and mind you, this is at a time when in molecular diagnostics, we've got other companies going around with nowhere near this kind of um, evidence marshaled on their behalf. Some of you may have heard of Theranos. I rest my case. You, you are doing it a very different way. And then once you've, you've checked all these boxes on the evidence, then you put your foot on the gas with marketing. Um, it, I, I hear about Colagard now on local television, on NPR's Marketplace. Uh, I, I know you're, you're big on social media. Uh, and this is just generally like not done. Like people are afraid in molecular diagnostics. Either they're, either they don't have the evidence, or they're afraid that maybe they'll make some unsubstantiated claim, and the FDA will wrap their knuckles. So you, you shouldn't say anything. But you've been bold here. Why? This is a, uh, colon cancer is a, a solvable pre um, health problem. This is a, a disease that actually can be prevented and it can be cured if detected early. We actually have a moral obligation to make sure that people are, are getting screened. And, and this isn't like we're trying to convert people who are already getting screened with a perfectly safe test to a new method. Four in 10 Americans just don't get screened. Hey, look, we have a moral, it's the number two cancer killer. So, um, 
our, our view on this was how do you educate the patient? Because physicians are really hard to change, to change their view and their practice. It takes time and effort and repeat visits, and it just doesn't happen overnight. How many people have gotten a Colgard test to this day? About 1.3 million. 1.3 million. And how many people are in the eligible population who you know, might ought to get screened after the age of, say, 45? There are 20 million people between the ages of 45 and 49 that just the American Cancer Society just this year recommended that that group get screened. There are 85 million Americans between the ages of 50 and 84 that are in what is, uh, you know, for a long time has been the screening population. 85 million people, and let's say almost half of them are underscreened. And so colonoscopy, a- hey, look, it's a great screening method, except for the 50% of the people who won't get a colonoscopy. Then it's a really poor screening method. Well, and it should be noted, too, that if, a, if I were to take a screening test from, of Cologuard and it turns up positive that you know, we think you've got early signs of cancer here, you then go and get a, confirm, a, a confirmatory test via the colonoscopy, right? So you're not... Yeah, and this is an important point. So about 95% of people who get a positive Cologuard will then actually go through with a colonoscopy. So we know that people who are colonoscopy refusers are willing to get a colonoscopy if they have a positive test, point one. Point two, Mayo Clinic did a study that showed their gastroenterologists, who did pretty well in medical school, are really well trained, they find twice as many polyps, 40% more precancerous polyps, when they know the patient has a positive Cologuard test. Oh, and by the way, they spend twice as much time looking. So not only does it affect the, the, a positive Cologuard test affect the patient, we know it also affects the person doing the procedure looking for the problem. So it's a wonderful paired diagnostic and then a therapeutic tool, which then actually can remove that precancerous polyp. And all you do is you put this little coil around the polyp and then remove, you know, tighten it up and remove that. And, the, you know, the patient doesn't feel anything. They go on. It, it has potentially saved their life. So now here you are, 2018. You've grown like gangbusters. You've got this partnership now with Pfizer. They're going to put more fuel on the fire of this marketing campaign. Uh, you've got a big addressable market of 85 million people. You've barely scratched the surface. Um, where, where do you go next? We are only about 3%, we only have about 3% of the people in the screening population. And we think that eventually Cologuard will be 40% of of the people will choose Cologuard. So we're at the really early side of things and we're we're building a company that can uh, meet the demands uh, of our patients and and, and kind of exceed their, their expectations from an experience perspective. I see our team here in the audience that built our lab, and when they um, built our... Could you three stand up for a little bit? I know you'll hate me. People doing the work, yes. Abby, Anna, and Belinda. Truly an amazing thing that they were able to build the lab and always build capacity that has been able to to meet this huge influx of people getting screened. And our goal is to build capacity. Once we have our new site up, uh, we'll be north of 5 million uh, tests per year capacity.
You'll do that right here in Wisconsin? Yes. Now I want to come back to one, one local question which I skipped over in your history, which was you did get a little bit of incentives from the state of Wisconsin to move the company, that, that diamond in the rough that you saw there in Boston, Stan Lapidus' crew, uh, here. And it was something like a million dollars in a forgivable loan, something like this. Uh, and then later on, you got some tax credits, I think up to something like $9 million. Um, These are pretty small dollar amounts compared to what I heard about with Foxconn in a session earlier. Uh, and this is actually a couple, couple people in the audience have asked this question. You know, given your background as an attorney, well, do, what is your view of incentives? How important were they to you, first off? I had a hard time convincing the board of directors, which is a Boston-based company, to move it to Madison, Wisconsin. And I, we approached the Department of Commerce and asked if they would provide a, a million-dollar incentive for us to basically restart the company here. There weren't people moving from Boston, but we had the cost of opening up a, a new facility. The company was light on capital. We are close to being delisted from NASDAQ. And so I had to make the case to the board of directors that moving it made sense, and th that certainly helped. That million dollars really, really helped. Governor Jim Doyle um, was the ultimate decision maker in that. And then um, later, as we started to expand our lab, we had the question of where is the best place for us to do, to do this? And, and it, Madison, we think, is the logical place, so you can make the, the case that it is in a in a city closer to a UPS or FedEx hub, where you you know, you know can get the samples in and out and you don't have the risk of weather. And we approached the state of Wisconsin and um, the uh, WEDC, and, and they did provide a, a $9 million incentive. We had to hire 750 people by 2020. We've already done that. Um, and we appreciate that, and we think it's a good trade-off. We so have paid $60 million in total state taxes, payroll taxes, property taxes, in return for that. So we think that that, and we've created, uh, oh, about 1,400 jobs. Well, it's, if you're thinking of this in very simple terms, it's $10 million in from the state for a company that's worth $10 billion. I don't like to point to the, uh, the value of our stock because that changes every day. I would, I would point to there's a bigger value here, and that is that the science that is being done in the University of Wisconsin now, if there are companies around here that are scientific companies, there's an opportunity to collaborate with the researchers, with the medical school. Um, you start to see spin-off companies. I mean, what would uh, San Francisco do to... Uh, attract a Genentech, which now has, what, 40,000 employees, and um, you, it, it's, you want economic development to occur in your state with high-growth companies, and we're not really seeing it in Wisconsin, so I think it makes sense to have reasonable incentives, not unreasonable ones. I, I, I would argue strongly against that. Okay, so what in do you industries think Foxconn? that are growth... I think Foxconn, $4 billion, I just saw a report. So the state touted 13,000 jobs were coming. And so we're going to give $4 billion. Now, the numbers don't make sense for 13,000. They just don't make sense. Well, now the report is that it's going to be fewer than 3,000 jobs. And the facility is going to be smaller. And it's not going to be the big screen TVs, which didn't really make sense. It's going to be smaller components. 
And I think it, it's tremendous to attract Foxconn. I strongly believe it's important to attract companies like that. But $4 billion, you know what various higher technology industries could, could happen to them if we had targeted, real targeted strategic views on how to create these industries over time? You would create way more than Foxconn for $4 billion. Well, and if you look at places like San Francisco or Boston that are the two head and shoulders above everyone else, leading hubs of biomedical innovation in the US and in the world. Uh, I mean, di they didn't provide any incentives for Genentech to locate there in the 1970s, but they had tremendous investments in basic research at, the at UCSF, at Stanford, at Berkeley, same story in Boston with Harvard and MIT and all those teaching hospitals, and they had a collaborative community around that. Now here you've got an asset with the University of Wisconsin-Madison just down the street from you. How, does that, how do you work with them? Honestly, we have... Um we have struggled in our relationship with the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I think the university can do a lot more than they do, and I think they are trying. We have a wonderful relationship with Chancellor Blank, uh, with uh, Dr. Kaplan, who runs the UW Health System. It is institutionally, I think, more can be done. And, and I'll, I'll give an example. In, in trying to get UW-Madison to be part of our 100 clinical trial sites for the deep sea study, our, our big study, it was really difficult. It took almost a year just to get it through the bureau bureaucratic process to approve the clinical trial, which was already being run at Mayo Clinic and um, by that time probably 50 other sites around the country. It was, and it historically has been dif difficult and Chancellor Blank and Dr. Kaplan are, are looking at that and are coming up with ways to improve it. But historically, you don't come to UW-Madison if you want to run a clinical trial. That should change. We should be more open to collaborations with industry. Industry isn't evil, and sometimes it is perceived as we're the bad guys. So uh, We should be on the same team, and, and our partnership with Mayo Clinic has been indispensable, whereas they kind of rolled out the red carpet. What can we do to help? this idea, not the company, but this idea come to patients and physicians. Can you give an example of how it's easier to collaborate with Mayo Clinic on a formal basis? Because what you're describing there sounds to me like formal kind of legal arrangements that one needs to have before you do a clinical trial. So we, so we met with, as I mentioned, we met with Dave Alquist in February of 2009. By June of 2009, we had a full-blown um, partnership where we were funding fundamental research that would help our test and help develop other tests. And uh, the Mayo Clinic would get a royalty, in, in the, a, a, a reasonable royalty in the future. And altogether, we have invested $65 million into research with the Mayo Clinic. I'll tell you, it's just, it would have been, it is hard to do that with UW, and it shouldn't be. It should be easier for us to do that research. Look, I've said this publicly, I've gotten in trouble for it, but one thing I really believe, you can't solve pro problems unless you are transparent, 
and you, tr and you work together to try to solve these problems. And I do believe, and I want to emphasize this, that Chancellor Blank and others are trying to address these issues. Now, you're, you're describing the, the situation from your side of the story, but from Mayo Clinic's side, would they say that, did they still have the right to publish the results of their study, positive or negative? We said, we're going to fund you. You do the research that you want to do. We hope that it is around um, future cancers, mm -hmm. and it all has been and publish what you want to. We will never ever tell you what to publish and what not to publish. And we would actually prefer that they publish all information, whether a study is good, bad, or indifferent. You have to advance the state of science, and you can't do that by hiding the ball. And they were able to do this as well and advance their own academic careers because this is advancing the field and yes. advancing knowledge. Uh, what about graduate students? Are they being treated properly? Are they turning into you know, a cheap labor force, for exact, off to, off to the side? I mean, a strong principle that we have is that people should get paid a fair salary. Mayo Clinic is a partner that believes the same thing. So um, that it is evident in, in how we pay our, our people and how Mayo Clinic pays theirs. Um, also, when our test first started to become used, by patients and physicians all over the country. One morning I woke up and the headline said, doubts plague Cologuard. And they had two or three different physicians quoted from uh, UW Health System that were really critiquing in a strong negative way Cologuard. And, and they wouldn't allow Cologuard to be uh, used within their system. They wouldn't recommend it as a screening test. It really took time. And eventually we worked through all of those things. Again, because we, you know, talk. We, we don't uh, our hair isn't on fire. We sit down and lay out the evidence. Here are the studies. Let's make sure that people have a choice. And uh, now we have a very good productive relationship with UW Health, and they do offer the test, and they make it easy for doctors to order. Okay, so we're, this is helpful in terms of that high-level, strategic, formal relationship. But what about the informal? I mean, you pointed to a few of your people. Uh, that's another thing that University of Wisconsin provides, is a steady stream of smart people who can come do this work at your company. You need to find them from somewhere. Um, so how, how, where are you getting your people so, from? Um, one of the reasons we love Madison so much as a place to grow a business is UW-Madison has one of the top five biochemistry programs in the world. I mean, you're talking about highly, highly capable people who we can find as a, a postdoc and they join exact sciences and they start to do really important research and have the chance to take that and translate it into products that potentially save lives. And so our relationship with the university at that high level is absolutely critical to our success. And I would say we have an advantage over being in Boston and San Francisco because there isn't, you know, we're getting people who love the city of Madison, which is an amazing city, and convincing them to stay here, which isn't so hard. If you lose them to, to Boston or San Francisco, they have 100, 200 different companies they could go work for. So when we hire people, they tend to stay. Uh -huh. Now, how about importing people? Are, are, are you bringing in a lot of people from out of state to come fill these jobs? Yeah. Do you ha I mean, you're growing so fast, I'm sure you have to. Yeah, uh, I think a good example is uh, Anna Hooker and her husband, Paul, who is now a professor in the chemistry department here at UW. 
uh, came from Salt, a long time, almost 20 years in Salt Lake City. Graham Lidgard, our chief science officer, who without uh, Graham joining us, we wouldn't have a cold guard test. He came, he lived a block off the beach in La Jolla, California. He had spent his career in San Diego and before that Boston, and he moved to Madison at age 59 in October of 2009. <laughs> that was the biggest coup. Forget the parallel review with FDA and CMS, getting Graham Lidgard to leave the beach and come to Madison. And uh, Graham's 69 this year, and he's still, you can find him, you could probably find him this morning behind his desk looking at data from some experiment that was conducted this week. Okay, other than a couple one-offs, what, what's your sales pitch on this place when you're talking to people from California, from the East Coast? You know, the only areas that we have had a hard time were, were in marketing, and we just had three people leave AbbVie to join us uh, in Chicago. You know, our pitch is, do you believe in our mission? If you believe in our mission, move here because the mission is more important than um, a beach. And it really is. There's no doubt about it. And so it, we tend to select people based on those people who are really committed to this mission of changing cancer outcomes by through early detection. Uh, and we haven't had that problem. It's been in kind of an exciting company for the last nine years. And so people... Uh, we have been able to attract from all over the country. Now, here's another question from a couple of people in the audience about, uh, are you glad you didn't relocate to downtown Madison? It would have been great to be in downtown Madison, um, but you, we just don't look back. That's, that's the real truth is at the time, our, our financially, we couldn't afford to do it. We made a decision. We moved on. Now we're building a wonderful new uh, headquarters in the University Research Park. And there, uh, let me tell you, the university has been an amazing partner there. Um, and so we're happy. But we'd love to be downtown. The, the truth, though, is now we're becoming a bigger company maybe than we had anticipated. And downtown, we might have uh, maxed out our capacity uh, sooner than we will in the research park. Lots of land, low cost, 10 minutes from downtown. What, what, what else, what's missing here for you? What, what, do you? what do you worry about? You know, trying to, to develop a test that has as big of impact as Colocard is having is hard because there's, you know, Colocard, you only have one new test like that every 20 or 25 years. And so now we're working on a liver cancer test and that could have a huge impact for what soon will become the number two cancer killer in the US. Um, and so those are the challenges. You can't rest on your laurels. So you lose sleep over, are we getting too comfortable? Um, do you have a sense of urgency every day? Does everybody on the leadership team have a sense of, a real sense of urgency? We had a sense of urgency early on um, when, because we knew that if we missed on any one of these things, it was over. And this wonderful new technology wouldn't, would never make its way to the people who need it. And so that, there's a constant uh, state of, of need. I'll go back to uh, one of the things that inspired both Manish and I, we had both been touched by close friends who had developed colon cancer right when we were starting this, this company. I had, in succession, three friends in a row from Flint um, uh, develop colon cancer in their 40s. And then a fourth, uh, my cousin's wife, um, a few years later. 
And only one, one of those uh, people is still alive today because they, in, in your 40s, you're not screened. So by definition, when you're diagnosed with colon cancer, it's late stage. And that was a real, uh, that lit a fire. And, and Manish is, is a, a couple, he and his wife went to the University of Chicago and they're best friends. One of them um, was diagnosed with uh, colon cancer. And, um, and, and unfortunately too, she was diagnosed stage three, which progressed to stage four, and she passed away with, you know, a young family. You, you mentioned earlier that you're an intellectual property attorney, your IP. I, I know you don't talk in too much detail about what's actually in the test, the secret sauce, but there's a couple different genes that you're looking at. There's a couple different methylation markers. There's some traces of blood in there, maybe like eight or 10 key ingredients. That's, that's exactly right. Two DNA methylation markers, NDRG4, BMP3, and then seven different mutations in the KRAS gene, um, and then uh, hemoglobin, so blood. And on a combination base, it was actually a neat story because w when Graham first started, he went into his office, and for two weeks he barely came out. And he had this stack of publications looking at all of the known biomarkers for colon cancer. I thought, I wonder if Graham's ever going to talk to us. He's it's been two weeks. And I'll never forget this. He walked out of his office and he said, I've got it. You've got what? I've, I know what the test is going to be. What? And we thought it was going to be DNA methylation markers. It's going to be two or three DNA methylation markers. It's going to be the KRAS gene, seven mutations, and it's going to be hemoglobin. We said, but those are three different marker classes. He says, yes, in combination, they're going to be additive. And in 20 years of people working on this problem, nobody had thought that way. Three different layers of information. Coming at it will. three different ways. Yeah. Almost like a, the HIV cocktail approach to like bombard this and look for every known class in that sample. And it worked. Now, it took Graham an immense amount of engineering and scientific and uh, product development work to get there. And there were so many problems along the way. And he always just went went back into his office, thought, hired really, really smart, capable people, was always calm, cool, and collected, and always solved the problem. But I think you know where I'm going with this. Like, how wide is your moat? In other words, now, now that you've had some success, uh, do, do you hear competitive footsteps? And how easy you know, is it to duplicate People always ask this, this question. Nine and a half years later, nobody else has tried to develop a stool-based test. They're all chasing this... Um, you know, the, the holy grail of a blood-based colon cancer screening test, and they forget to read Bert Vogelstein's fundamental papers in this area, which describe a biological barrier in, um, for stage one cancers transmitting cancer DNA into the blood. I won't go into all those details, but this is what Bert Vogelstein said. When, and we just went and visited Bert first month and said, we, we don't want to develop a stool test, we want to develop a blood test. And he said, well, you haven't read my papers, have you? And I said, no. We haven't. And he, and he described the problem. We said, oh, we're going to develop a stool test. And nobody else has started. And part of it is, as they look at what we're doing now, we have uh, last reported 120,000 physicians who've ordered a Colgard test. We have them in our database. We've had over 2 million people have a Colgard test ordered. We have them in our database. Eventually, by the, if somebody wants to develop a test, we will already be deeply connected with primary care physicians. And how do you, it's really hard to develop a test that detects more than 94% of curable stage cancers. 
So what are they going to do that is significantly different? In the meantime, we're trying to, to improve the performance of Colocard, lowering the false positive rate. I think we'll be, be successful at that. And um, so we'll just keep adv advancing the, the ball. And we're creating a brand, a trusted brand. And that's why it's so important for every interaction that we have with a physician customer or a patient customer to make sure that that is a tremendously positive experience. You know, hearing you talk like this, it just strikes me as such a contrast to some of the people I talk to in Silicon Valley and in Boston area. Uh, you're, of course, you're aware of the company Grail. Many of you may, may or may not have heard of this one, but they're looking at blood uh, for an early detection cancer test. Uh, $1.9 billion worth of venture capital in, totally speculative, May, using next generation sequencing, may turn out to be nothing in a few years. You, you built this whole business in a, in a different way. I mean... Well, look, um, yeah, we have taken a different approach, but I, I will say this. I, I just welcome companies like Grail. They, they came out with a study that was groundbreaking showing the ability to detect um, early stage cancers with the blood draw, albeit at a fairly low rate. Maybe they detect about 30% of cancers with a blood-based test. And again, they're running into some biological barrier problem. Some of the cancers, like ovarian cancer, they showed you could detect 90% of early-stage cancers. So it's just a couple of liver and ovarian that seem, seem amenable to stage one detection from a blood draw. Okay, but they're moving the needle forward. And you have to support your peers who do it the right way. And I give them a lot of credit because they publish the data, even though it wasn't you know, remarkable, they're advancing the ball compared to a Theranos that was smoke and mirrors and refused to publish the information. So you know, I give Grail all the credit in the world for doing what they're doing. Yeah, I don't mean to compare Grail with Theranos, but it, it's, it, it's a study in, in cultural contrasts is really what I'm saying, how you go about building a business. I don't think there are a lot of people running around putting a billion dollars into speculative ventures in Madison, Wisconsin, but Madison, every once in a while, will grow up a company that yeah. makes real money and, and, Luke, and helps a lot of people. We're, Luke, we're so proud of what being in Madison has done for the company. It has grounded people. So during the times that we have had highs, people are, are sober about it. When we have had real lows, like when the draft guidance went the wrong way, we didn't have anybody quit. Nobody's hair was on fire. Everybody went back to work. And, um, you know, that would, would not have been the case if you were in Silicon Valley, where people would have got, they would have left. If you were in Boston, people would have taken stock of their careers and said, I, well, I can go over to this other company. And that's not the case in Madison. We saw that with Third Wave. And that's why, um, you know, Manish and I said, there's just no other place we're, we're going to start our, the next phase of our careers. We're going to stay here. Wonderful, Kevin. I think that's a great point to wrap up. We're out of time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Luke. Thank you for listening to Live from CapTime's IdeaFest. You can subscribe to this show on iTunes or anywhere else you find podcasts. If you like it, please give us a rating or a review. We'd appreciate it. We're also releasing audio from the fest on some of our other podcasts here at the CapTimes. Shows like The Corner Table, The Madsplainers, and CapTimes Talks. 
be sure to give those a listen. I'm Eric Lawrenson, and thanks again for tuning in.